How are you doing? This is Rob, your host of the Video Game Waffle Podcast. And this is the very first episode. So I thought I'd take the opportunity to talk a little bit to you guys about what this podcast will be going forward, the topics we'll cover, and so on. So really, there's times, you know, and I'm sure you guys as listeners experience it too, where you feel very strongly about a topic. Maybe it's a video game itself, or maybe it's it's something within the industry. And you're like, you know what, I want to speak on that. So that's what this podcast is. Sometimes, like this episode in particular, we'll be talking about a video game, we'll be doing a little bit of a deep dive, and then other times we'll be talking about, I don't know, DLC and the merits of it, or we'll be talking about video game development, the soundtracks, the music, and all the aspects of gaming. Usually those will be the topics that are close to me, because obviously I'm the one playing the games. But sometimes we'll try and bring people in that can speak a bit more accurately about the topics that I want to talk about. So that's it. Yeah, that's the idea for the podcast. It's going to be a fun journey. I would like to remind everyone that we are on Patreon. You can support us over there. All the links are in the description, all the social media links and all of that stuff. And if you really, really, really want to help me out in these early stages, you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts. That would be absolutely fantastic as a matter of fact i would go as far as to say that that is the best thing you can do for the podcast right now is to leave a review because we're just a little baby podcast right now you know we're trying to fight our way up here we're the small guys so yeah it's nice to have a bit of a backing early on as you move forward okay so today today we're talking about resident evil resident evil iconic video game series still going strong which i love to see but the original game was the game that left the most impression on me and sort of sent me down this pathway into adulthood of obsession with zombies, the whole culture. So I want to talk a little bit about my experiences with the game, some of my favorite memories, some cool trivia, and just basically make this episode a celebration of Resident Evil. That's kind of the idea here. So Resident Evil was actually created by Shinji Mikami and Tokuro Fujiwara, and it was released all the way back in 1996. So I was eight at that age. I believe I got the director's cut when I was nine. We'll talk a little bit about that later, the story of how I got it. But yeah, so the inspiration was actually from the game Sweet Home. Shouts out to my co-host Eamon for that little bit of trivia. But Sweet Home was actually made by Takuro Fujiwara, one of the two that made Resident Evil. And that original game is a lot like Resident Evil, but it was limited because it was on the Super Nintendo. So 16-bit system. But it had a lot of the same ideas that Resident Evil went on to utilise, such as, you know, limited items, as well as a limited inventory space. It had a mansion setting, puzzles, survival, notes and diaries that were all part of the the storytelling mechanic. And it also had multiple endings, which was something really, uh, up until Resident Evil, I don't think I was too familiar with games that had multiple endings. And to be honest, at that age, I I probably hadn't really cleared many games. This was back when games were brutally difficult. But the interesting thing was Fujiwara had this idea for Resident Evil. He wanted higher fidelity graphics, and he basically just wanted to do things that he couldn't do in Sweet Home. And he also was kind of a visionary in that he really did see horror games becoming their own genre. And they have. I mean, look, at the time now, he was kind of a trailblazer. But he actually entrusted Mikami, who was initially kind of reluctant. And the reason he was reluctant was because he was a scaredy cat. He didn't really like horror. But this sort of emboldened Fujiwara because he sort of said, well, 
you know what's frightening, so you go ahead and develop the fucking game. Go and do it. And thus Resident Evil was born. But it wasn't known as Resident Evil in Japan. It was Biohazard over there. They had to change the name because it was a punk band of the same name and also a DOS game with a similar name too. But it is known as the first survival horror game. Um, Alone in the Dark has the fixed camera perspective as well. But I believe Resident Evil is the sort of definitive survival horror game of that generation and forevermore. But if you think about the genre now, if you think about the legacy that Resident Evil has left, you've got games like Alien Isolation, you've got Amnesia, you've got zombie games like, you know, you have uh, State of Decay, Dead Rising, and just so many more that I can't even name. There's just so many names jumping out and I'm like, okay, we could go on forever. Whether those games would have come regardless, whether survival horror would have become a thing regardless, it's hard to say. It's kind of like when people say, oh, you know, the Beatles aren't that good, like Led Zeppelin were better, or Metallica were better than Led Zeppelin, or, you know, whatever. As the years go on, people always say the newer iteration is better. But we don't know how those iterations would have developed without the original. So without the Beatles, we don't know what Led Zeppelin would have sounded like. And much the same without Resident Evil, we don't know how any of these other horror games would have been shaped. Would they be totally different? Who knows? Would survival horror even be as popular? It's really hard to say. But yeah, let's get into it. Let's talk about the game from top to bottom. And I think the first thing you could really talk about here is the cover. So let's talk about the cover. Let's get into it. We're going to talk about the whole game from top to bottom. You might remember this cover as Chris Redfield with kind of a bayonet. And then there's some tarantulas kind of imprinted on the screen and you have some zombie heads and stuff like that. And I always thought that, yeah, this was Chris. It's not. So there's the first little bit of trivia that you may or may not have known about this game is that it's actually not Chris Redfield on the front. It's actually Richard Aiken. Now, Richard Aiken is actually, he has some of the worst, best lines in the game. He's the guy that you meet after he gets eaten by a snake. And he has some really funny lines that you guys should check out on YouTube. If I could play them on the podcast, I would, but because of copyright and stuff like that, I don't really feel too comfortable with it. But his lines are phenomenal. So it's actually him on the cover. And the reason he's on the cover is because there was a prequel comic that was released by Marvel that was set in the mansion. And of course, the Stars Bravo team were the first guys to get to the mansion. We'll talk a little bit about that later. So yeah, Richard Aiken, he was the first dude that encountered all this terrifying shit. But let's talk about how I got my hands on video games back then. I think that was a story in and of itself. You know, a lot of the time now, people probably just pestered their parents to get, like, uh, to buy them DLC or to buy them a downloadable, to get the code or whatever, you know. But back then, you know, you kind of, you had to buy a physical copy for a start anyway. That was the, the done thing. But also, it was quite difficult to get games. So let's talk about how a nine-year-old was able to get his hands on Resident Evil Director's Cut back in, like, 1997 or 98, whenever it was. So, back then, you know, you were just hearing rumours about video games. You know, you're you're especially scary games and and games that were out of reach. You you would be hearing trickle-down stories from people that were older, that were playing and stuff like that. And we were all interested in Resident Evil. There was talks about it. We had seen it in video game magazines. Remember those? And everyone wanted to get their hands on this game. This was like the hot shit. And I was walking home from school one day and I looked in the window of a secondhand bookstore and lo and behold, it was Resident Evil Director's Cut. 
really good condition. Must have been like almost brand new. Whoever bought it probably just cleared it, handed it in. And I believe, I want to say that it was 27 or £30, which is actually a pretty good steal even now. And the game came with the Resident Evil 2 demo as well, which made it even more enticing. Because actually a lot of us were would rather the Resident Evil 2 demo at the time we wanted to get the new thing. So I, I was able to coerce my parents into buying it. This was at a time when I don't think parents really took video games age ratings that seriously. And to be fair, up until that point, you didn't have to. The fidelity of the graphics was awful. They were a lot more rudimentary. And I kind of class Resident Evil as probably the first truly immersive horror game. And why was it immersive? Well, it had actual voices. It had actual actors, which again, we'll talk about later. And it had quite a lot of lore and story to it. All of this really made me too, too too afraid to actually play the game full stop most of the time. Resident Evil, I think a lot of you guys will have fond memories of playing with someone else, couch co-op, basically. One person would direct and the other person would play like, oh, maybe go to this room. Or yeah, that room in the mansion, yeah, that one down the hall, that had something in it. Yeah, let's go back to that and check that out. And it was very much a cooperative effort for a game that was single player. There was actually attempts to make a cooperative Resident Evil at the time, but I think they ended up ditching it. It wasn't, it just wasn't good enough. So they said, right, let's get rid of that. Okay, so let's go to the intro and let's check out the story. The story that catapulted zombies into the mainstream again. We were out of the Romero era and now into something new. So a series of bizarre murders have occurred on the outskirts of Raccoon City, with signs of cannibalism on the victims' remains. The Raccoon City Police Department Special Tactics and Rescue Service, which is STARS, are assigned to investigate the murders. Of course, there's STARS Alpha, STARS Bravo. All equally as cheesy, but they're both there. Bravo was sent first, like we talked about earlier, and contact was lost with them. So Alpha Team were sent in to check out what had happened to Bravo. It's always the Alphas that have to do it, right? Right away, Alpha Team finds this crashed helicopter, and this cuts the cuts into the great FMV for one of the first times in video games we start to see at least console games we start to see real life actors representing their on-screen counterparts so that was cool so you had you know Jill Wesker all those guys basically people cosplaying them so they land zombie dogs kill Joseph hilarious lines ensue terrible acting all across the board everyone runs once the dogs attack they get to this abandoned mansion and they get in and they seek refuge. And that's kind of how the game kicks off. I don't know. Like, I, I try to, what would you guys do? You know, you're in a situation, you're getting chased by zombies, zombie dogs, which is even worse. Zombie spiders, maybe are a little bit worse. I don't know. And you get into this mansion. What do you do from there? Like, in the game, there beco- it becomes like a sort of a balancing act where. Pretty soon after you get into the mansion, you realise that there's zombies everywhere and the place is full of horror, full of dread. And so at what point, this is something that I always wondered with this game, and, and maybe you guys have too if you've played through it, is at what point is a few dogs outside the mansion worse than a zombie overrun mansion? You know, sometimes I kind of think, would I have just taken my chances and just ran out the front door? Or around the back, I would have found a back door, just ran and, and and took me chances. Because the mansion is iconic, you know, this is somewhere that really is burned into my head. And we'll talk a little bit about it more later. 
but it's there that you meet your first zombie. This is a, a scene where, you know, you walk through this um big dining room, find another little door, go in, you hear this noise and you're like, What is that? Come in, you know, you find the iconic first zombie. And it's there that Resident Evil really shows itself, I think, as it's that little simple zombie that tells you so much about what's coming for you in this game. And what I mean by that is, you know, you you first encounter this zombie, you have a few ways to dispatch him. You know, you have your knife, you have your pistol, or you can run out to Barry, who's in the hall, and he will dispatch the zombie. Now, the Barry thing is kind of a trick. It's not something you would have thought about straight away. Because I think most times in video games, you're like, here's a problem, let me deal with it straight away, directly. And so most people naturally would have just used their gun. They didn't realise what was coming. They didn't realise how scarce ammo was going to be. So yeah, they'll put a few rounds in the zombie. And so I think this is the first time that, if you really think about it, you can take advantage of a few of the mechanics of Resident Evil. Either one, by running to Barry and letting him take the zombie out. Or two, use your knife and, and actually plan it out a bit. Or maybe a hybrid. You shoot the zombie a few times, he drops then you knife him while he's still alive on the ground. So yeah, there was a lot of scenarios that could have played out, and I think it does a really good job of sort of saying to you, right, it's up to yourself here, there's no hand-holding, you got to figure it out. But the T-virus to me is something that I wanted to talk about because I think it's funny. So that when I first seen these zombies and I got immersed in the lore of Resident Evil, I was petrified of, of zombies. Like, they haunted my nightmares for years after. I would say from like eight till like 12, 13, I was terrorized by zombies, but I couldn't get enough of them. But at the same time, I was still mad paranoid. I remember watching Night of Living Dead remake, I think the, the, I believe it's the early 90s remake, I think that's when it came out. And even that, and when you look back at that now, it's just awful. Not in a bad way, but cheesy. And that, even, even watching that, I was up in my bed paranoid all night. So, as a young kid, this T-virus, this was the first time I was reading about viruses. This was the first time I was learning about zombies. So, in this game, you find out that people get infected with this virus. They turn into zombies. They bite people. The people die. Then they come back as zombies. This, to me, was like the ultimate boss. There was no way around it. And I was was paranoid about, what if this happens in real life? And... You know, none of my parents know about zombies. Of course they did, but I didn't realise at the time. They're not cool enough to know about zombies. What happens if they turn into zombies? People bite them. So yeah, it was actually something that spent a lot of time in my head. Let me know if you guys had the same experience. But the cast. Ah, the cast. What would Resident Evil be without the cast? So there's actually kind of an interesting story behind that too. It was all filmed in Japan, all American actors... And that was in both versions. They didn't use Japanese actors for a Japanese version. And they actually kept the English voices in the Japanese version too. So I'm sure it's probably funny at the time. A lot of the Japanese people probably thought that these voiceovers were really good. But some later learned that they were terrible. It was actually lead programmer Yashuhiro Ampo later said that due to all of the development stuff being Japanese, they were unaware of the poor localization that apparently hindered the realism and immersion of the title. So even the developers realised this. And the rundown, let's talk about the rundown of the crew. You know, you have Albert Wesker, has a great line, don't be upset, all weak people exist to be eaten. And this guy had even a zombie and he said this. 
you have Barry Burton. Barry, you know, in hindsight, looking back at Barry, he's probably my favorite character. I, I suggest you guys go onto YouTube or better yet, play the game and listen to all of Barry's hilarious lines. Barry's one of the characters that you meet throughout the game. He sort of comes in to help or he'll come in as a kind of deus ex character and provide you with something that, you know, you can beat an enemy that you couldn't beat before or something, that kind of thing. But every time you meet him, it sort of seems like he's completely oblivious to everything that's going on in the mansion. One of my favourites, and it's it's a well-known trope of the game, is when you nearly get crushed by the ceiling. And he says to Jill, you were almost a Jill sandwich. But there's a great, there's a great uh, moment where he comes in and you're fighting a giant plant. And he comes in and, and that dialogue that he says to Jill when he sees this whole thing going on is my favourite. It's just such a disaster. I'll put it on the Instagram page. So if you guys want to follow me on Instagram, you'll you'll see that clip. It's, it's really funny. Yeah, Brad Vickers, he actually shows up in all, another Resident Evil 2. Chris Redfield, he's he's been in probably out of all of the characters, been in the most Resident Evils. Jill Valentine, the lovely, lovely Jill. She has a great, a great line as well. You know, after discovering loads of zombies, loads of terrible shit, she says, I've been thinking something is wrong with this house. As if she has just, you know, this is just dawned on her. And then, of course, Joseph Frost, he dies right at the start. But so the cast are memorable. These were people that we used to play like, you know, oh, you're Barry, I, I'll be Chris and, and use it role play and, and, and pretend to be the stars people. Things like that as a kid, it was it was good fun. It's also one of the games, I look back now and, and to be fair, it, it probably is fairly sexist because you play as Jill and most of the time she gets herself in really dumb scenarios and then Barry rescues her and he's kind of like, oh, dumb woman. And same with... um chris and rebecca chambers who is a member of the bravo team who he meets in the house so yeah it's kind of it's funny because i did going into this episode i wanted to talk about how the playstation one era was definitely a great era for female protagonists we had like jill valentine lara croft and a bunch of others that just aren't really jumping to mind right now but yeah, Jill Valentine, while probably a, a cool female character, did seem to be a little bit clueless throughout the game. Even though I loved her, she was always the character I played as. She had more slots than Chris. That was the other thing. If you played as a fella, it was harder. And if you played as a woman, it was easier, which probably even that is a bit sexist. But Jill had more slots and stuff like that. So yeah, it was interesting. It was it was one of the first games that I had encountered where it had multiple endings and playstyles based on the character you picked. So I really did enjoy that. But the mansion, all oh, the mansion, the iconic Resident Evil mansion, I can still picture it now and I'll probably be able to picture it years from now. It's, it's burned into my head. And what I didn't know going into this episode was that the mansion was really inspired by the Overlook Hotel from The Shining. A lot of the pre-rendered backdrops of Resident Evil were modelled after that hotel. So that's kind of cool to know, especially if you're a Shining fan as well, which I am. So fan of both of these things. Maybe I have some sort of love for isolated architecture i don't know why maybe it's my calling maybe i need to run and find the resident evil mansion of my dreams but while the overlook hotel from the movie isn't a real thing it's actually based on a real hotel named the stanley hotel in estes park colorado so maybe i need to go there that's where i have to live but yeah apparently that has lots of horror movie fans running to it to check it out year after year so definitely worth the look the mansion itself was also pretty much an enemy, I think. When, I, when I'm thinking back at the game and, and stuff like that, I think that if you went about your route wrong in Resident Evil, you know, you were screwed. So 
Planning was essential. Again, there was a lot of rooms where, you know, you were almost a Jill sandwich, but there was also rooms that you could go into too soon and you weren't supposed to really get there yet and there might be more zombies. You might have to use your ammo and then you're out of ammo. You're shit out of luck. And so I think in that regard, the mansion was definitely an enemy and it was also like labyrinth corridors. It was it was an easy place to get lost in. But yeah, there was danger. There was a sense of dread. But also sometimes this uncomfortable, safe feeling as well. It was because it was kind of like this regal mansion, you know, it looked beautiful, but also eerie. So it, it kind of was alluring at all like it sucked you in. You wanted to see the next room. The pre-rendered backdrops were gorgeous, so you were very excited to do that. But also every room came with its own problems. Most of those being the monsters. Let's talk a little bit about those guys. So we had the Cerberus, the, the zombie dog that we talked about earlier. And those guys had an iconic scene. We all probably remember filling our underpants once we walked through that very first corridor. The Cerberus burst through the windows and it's a jump scare, probably the first in the game. And then you realize that they move faster than zombies. They're a lot trickier to deal with. And yeah, they're not fun. But zombies are the iconic villain of Resident Evil. They're everywhere, ever-present, and they helped catapult the genre. So we can't forget about those guys. The Hunters were nightmarish. Because for me, as a kid, it took me long enough to get to the point where you meet Hunters, which is about roughly about the halfway point in the game, somewhere around there. And then you find out that the difficulty has spiked again. They've made it tougher. You guys might remember, I think you leave the sewers, isn't it? And and you you get back into the mansion and the next thing there's this cutscene where you see from the first person of this hunter, it's moving really fast and it's moving towards where you just were. And so you're like, oh no, what is this? You think it might be the boss, but no. Also, yeah, special shout out, I suppose, to the spiders. If you're a, a spider loather, you won't enjoy them. I don't really mind spiders, but I didn't have great fun dealing with those guys either. And of course, the tyrant was a great antagonist. Silent, scary, and fucks up Wesker, so we love him for that. The big snake, we have him to thank for the Richard Aiken line, so I kind of like the snake. Let's not forget the big plant. How can we forget the plant? Day of the Triffid stuff. A big giant beetroot, essentially, with tentacles that wants to fuck your shit up. When I think of Resident Evil, one of the things I think about is the ink ribbon and the safe room, or the save room, one or the other. But I wanted to talk about those because there was a sense of calm as soon as you entered one. You knew you were safe. And so for those unfamiliar with the series, safe rooms are a place that you go to save the game. And also there's a bit of relief from the anxiety and tension of the rest of the mansion because no villains, bad guys, enemies can attack you from there. So it was always a place where there was a a sigh of relief. Let me have a drink of tea. If you were a bit older, maybe you might have a cigarette. Plan your route. Chat about what's next. Do we have enough time to play on to the next part? All that kind of stuff. That was all part of the safe room. A lot of the time as well, the featured notes and research that added lore to the game. So it was a real treat. You'd find these rooms, bit of ammo, nice notes. You can chill out and you can save on your ink ribbon. Ink ribbons were cool as well. These were a mechanic that I wasn't familiar with at the time either, where you have limited saves to this ink ribbon that you would put in a typewriter. 
So again, you kind of had to plan your saves based on what difficulty you were on. You couldn't just save every time you entered a safe room. It was a brutal idea. But you also had the item chest, which kind of made things a little bit easier. And, you know, we'll all remember the item chest. It was basically a portal to every other safe room. You could put an item in there and go to another safe room across the mansion and have the item again. So there's there's actually harder modes in the remake. I'm not sure about the original where the safe room is, um, or sorry, the item chest is completely disabled. And what I mean by disabled is it can't teleport items. You can still use the chest. But one of the greatest aspects of the safe room was the music, that soothing piano. And there's a bit of a story here to the music that I figured out as I was doing the notes. So let's talk about that. It was originally composed by Makoto Tomozawa. But the real story lies in the Resident Evil director's cut Jewel Shock Edition, which even itself is a mouthful. So there was a delay on Resident Evil 2. And in an attempt to placate bloodthirsty fans, Capcom actually released Resident Evil director's cut. And in that, that was the one that I had. It had rearranged modes, a bit more difficulty and some superficial design revisions. But Shinji Mikami actually regretted not updating the soundtrack. So when the sound, when the Jewel Shock edition came out, he said, "Right, time to do the new soundtrack." And who better to have composed the soundtrack than the Japanese Beethoven? Japanese Beethoven's name is Samurai Gochi, and he was chosen to replace the resplendent work of Tomozawa, Hiroki, and Ueda. So it was a big team that he was coming on on his own to replace. So he had big balls. He was like, "I'm coming in. I'm going to make a better soundtrack." So this guy was the son of an atom bomb survivor and he was born in Hiroshima in 1963. He could play the works of Beethoven and back on the piano by the age of 10, he claimed. In 2001 for time, he said that losing my hearing was a gift from God. So not only was he a protege, he was also deaf. So people couldn't get enough of this guy. There was a, a documentary about him. Melody of the Soul is the name of it, and it follows the composer around tsunami-stricken Tohoku, meeting survivors who had lost relatives in the 2011 disaster. It was around that time that there was an 80-minute Tokyo Symphony Orchestra performance of his work, entitled Symphony No. 1 Hiroshima, and this became a hit. This was really popular, and these were lofty heights to be reached by a video game composer. Never mind the deaf one. So it turns out that this guy wasn't a composer, and he wasn't deaf. He had managed to keep this ruse up for 16 years, but it was all bollocks. Doubts were raised over his disability in 2014 when weekly magazine ERA published a damning report on the composer. During an interview, he had been observed to answer questions before the sign interpreter had finished translating. He was also said to have answered the doorbell immediately to receive a taxi once the session had finished. <laughs> so he was just half arson at this stage. He was like, yeah, I'm famous already. Whatever, I'll do whatever. So literally people were doing sign language to him and he already knew the answer and was just speaking before they were finished. So the people doing the sign were probably like, hang on, what's happening here? But yeah, the jig was up. In February 2014, a part-time Toho Gaku and university musical department lecturer named Takashi Nigaki went public in an hour-long television press conference. He revealed that he had been penning tunes for the imposter composer for over 18 years, so he had a shadow musician behind him. Shadow composer, if you will, I suppose. And he told reporters he'd been paid just 7 million yen, which is under $80,000, for over 20 composed works. I don't know if that's a good or bad thing. Like, I don't know what the going rate for compositions is. kind of a weird thing to have a price on isn't it is that good or bad i suppose it almost depends how much samurai gochi made from it which th- this article doesn't state here but he was paid for the resident evil dual shock edition 
So Nagaki had chosen to stay out of limelight so as not to disturb his teaching career. And then as Samuragoshi became famous, Nagaki raised his concerns. He said, like, okay, well, what's going to happen now? In response, Samuragoshi said he'd take his own life if Nagaki stopped working for him. Nagaki called his bluff and revealed to the world that Samuragoshi was actually full of shit. And his hearing worked fine and he was just a bluffer. So that was the end of that. The funny part here is, though, that Samuragoshi apologized for his deceit. But it was a half-hearted response. He said, I'm deeply ashamed for living a lie. And he wrote that in a handwritten note to the media, adding that the truth is that I have recently begun to hear a little again. So he just doubled down on the lie, really. Seems like some type of sociopath. Bluffer. But yeah, the fallout was catastrophic. Everyone pulled all of his works from the shelves. I think he was stripped of a Citizen's Award in Hiroshima, things like that. And what else I wanted to share here are some of the notes in Resident Evil. I think this is the first time that I was exposed to the zombie diary. And so I think that made it scarier because it gave it a human perspective on this outbreak. It actually lets you know that the enemy that you're fighting in this mansion were once real people that had a real story and now they're dead and trying to eat you. So it added to the whole horror. Keeper's Diary. May 9th, 1998. At night we played poker with Scott the guard, alias and Steve the researcher. Alias is a word now, that must be a translation error. Steve was really lucky, but I think he was cheating. What a scumbag. May 10th, 1998. Today a high-ranking researcher asked me to take care of the new monster. It looks like a gorilla without any skin. They told me to feed them live food. When I threw in a pig, they were playing with it tearing off the pig's legs and pulling out the guts before they actually ate it. May 11th, 1998. Around 5 o'clock this morning, Scott came in and woke me up suddenly. He was wearing a protection suit that looks like a spacesuit. He told me to put one on as well. I heard there was an accident in the basement lab. It's no wonder those researchers never rest, even at night. May 12th, 1998. I've been wearing this annoying spacesuit since yesterday. My skin grows musty and feels very itchy. By way of revenge, I didn't feed those dogs today. Now I feel better. May 13th, 1998. I went to the medical room because my back is all swollen and feels itchy. They put a big bandage on my back and the doctor told me I do not need to wear the spacesuit anymore. I guess I can sleep well tonight. May 14th, 1998. When I woke up this morning, I found another blister on my foot. It was annoying and I ended up dragging my foot as I went to the dog's pen. They have been quiet since morning, which is very unusual. I found that some of them escaped. I'll be in real trouble if the higher-ups find out. So these dogs that escaped actually were probably the ones that started the whole Resident Evil nightmare and killed Joseph and all those. May 15th, 1998. Even though I didn't feel well, I decided to go see Nancy. It's my first day off in a long time, but I was stopped by a guard on the way out. They say the company has ordered that no one leave the grounds. I can't even make a phone call. What kind of joke is this? May 16th, 1998. I heard a researcher who tried to escape from the mansion was shot last night. My entire body feels burning and itchy at night. When I was scratching the swelling on my arm, a lump of rotten flesh dropped off. What the hell is happening to me? May 19th, 1998. Fever gone but itchy. Hungry and eat doggy food. Itchy itchy, Scott came. Ugly face so killed him. Tasty. Four itchy, tasty. And so that's my favourite note. That's the note that I remember the most from the game. Uh, and like I said, probably the first time you get that perspective, that zombie perspective. And, and, and it did make things quite spooky. 
But that was just another angle of what made Resident Evil nice. It was that little touch of lore, that little little notes put in here and there. And I think that really added to it. Sometimes I feel about modern games that they add lore where there doesn't really need to be any. They add these notes where, you know, you're playing like a fast-paced open-world game or something, and you don't really want to be sitting down reading these really long notes in that type of game. I find, personally, anyway, let me know what you guys think too. But for me, Resident Evil, it was perfect because it was a slow-paced game. You know, you were taking your time. And even reading the notes was a bit of a respite from what was around you because the game actually paused and it went into the note itself. And I think they were very good at doing that, those breaks. It was also the opening doors in Resident Evil, that iconic loading screen. I mean, really, that's what it was more than anything. The door was just loading the new area. So while it seemed like a really spooky plot device, let's call it, it was more just due to hardware limitations at the time. So every time you went through a door, you'd get this loading screen. You didn't know what you were going to face. Could be good sometimes. You might go into a room, there's no zombies. You can take a sigh of relief, look around, grab some stuff. And then other times you'd have to brace yourself as soon as you heard those iconic footsteps that like squelchy, sounds like a guy with a kebab strapped to his feet or something, that noise. Then you were ready to go. Once you heard that, you were like, okay, this is trouble. Sometimes you could hear the feet clicking on the floor. The feet of dogs, that is. And sometimes the hunters as well. You knew from the footsteps what kind of trouble you were getting into. And that was another thing that just made Resident Evil such a good game. And that's what I wanted this episode to be, guys. It's just a celebration of a game that started a genre, changed the landscape of gaming for the better, and really just piqued my attention. It's no coincidence that 28 Days Later, Walking Dead, Shaun of the Dead, Zombieland, all these things came after. They were all directly inspired by it. You can say that Romero did the original Dawn of the Dead, all those flicks. But I truly believe that Resident Evil was what started the modern trend of zombie films and zombies in pop culture in general. And that was, we were all a part of that generation. What a time to be alive as a gamer, you know? We really are on, and this is something that I'll talk about more and more as we do more episodes, but we we are really living through the renaissance period of video gaming. Because in our life, at least me, I'm, 33 i've gone from 8 bit all the way up to what we have now so i've seen the 2d evolution to what we have today and it really is truly a marvel at times to see it's it's great to see these developers pushing things it's great to see resident evil trying to reinvent itself all the time it's also terrifying to think about what their true vision of horror might be once those guys get really competent VR, I'm truly fearful of what they'll make. I mean, Resident Evil 7 had great VR, but imagine a fully immersive project. I think VR, we're not fully there yet with the tech, but not far away in the future, we're going to be seeing some truly terrifying things. And that's it, guys. That's it from this episode. A brief celebration of Resident Evil. I hope you enjoyed this walk down memory lane, and I hope you got something from it. You can expect episodes like this in future. Sometimes I'll pick a game that I just think, that was such a good game, I need to talk about it. And we'll do a little dive into it. Maybe we'll find out some trivia. We'll take a walk down memory lane and have fun with it. But yeah, I hope you enjoyed episode one of this podcast. And I do remind you again, please leave a review if you can and support me via the links. I've been Rob. 
This has been Video Game Waffle, over and out.